hppodcraft.com. Let's do the quote first. Okay. It was in the dark of September 9th that the horror broke loose. The hill noises had been very pronounced during the evening, and dogs barked frantically all night. Early risers on the 10th noticed a peculiar stench in the air. About 7 o'clock, Luther Brown, the hired boy at George Corey's, between Cold Spring Glen and the village, rushed frenziedly back from his morning trip to Ten Acre Meadow with the cows. Between gasps, Luther tried to stammer out his tale to Mrs. Corey. Up there in the road beyond the glen, Miss Corey, there's something been there. It smells like thunder, and all the bushes and little trees is pushed back from the road like they'd a house been moved along of it. That ain't the worst, neither. There's prints in the road, Miss Curry, great round prints as big as barrel heads, all sunk down deep like an elephant had been along, only there's a sight more than four feet could make. I looked at one or two before I run, and I see every one was covered with lines spreading out from one place, like as if big palm-leaf fans, twice or three times as big as any they is, had been pounded down into the road. The smell was awful, like what it is around Wizard Waitley's old house. That is a quote from the seventh chapter of The Dunwich Horror by H.P. Lovecraft. I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and this is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Yep, here at hppodcraft.com. Uh, this is our third episode covering The Dunwich Horror. Unfortunately, it's it's just Chris and myself today. Yeah. Robert had a git, uh, but we were so thankful to have him for those first two parts. Man, that guy is great. Yeah, he's awesome. I can't wait to have him on the show again. I just kind of want him to hang out and all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Just be around, making comments on things, telling me, give me information. I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. I kind of I, I fell in love. You're a little in love with Robert and Price. That's okay. I, I, I get yeah. it, man. What's going on in the in the story right now? We left off where Wilbur Watley, kind of a goatish, weird, inbred giant, 15-year-old guy, uh, was trying right. to get typical, a copy. Typical literary character. Yeah, exactly. Was trying to get a copy of the Necronomicon and couldn't get it on loan from the library, so he's going to bust in and take it, and then a dog attacked him and killed him. Right. Now, I have to say, Chad, I didn't talk about this on the last episode, but mm-hmm. I was this is kind of a bummer for me, because Wilbur Watley is such a cool character, and he, his end is sort of, it should have he should have been more badass. Yeah, well, you know, we were talking a little bit how Lovecraft often has these characters who are insanely powerful in certain regards, but then have troubles navigating the... Yeah. Uh, the regular world and yeah and he just got killed by a dog yeah it was quite it was quite surprising the first time I, the way that they set him up i just assumed that there was going to be a big climax with wilbur you know yeah. when i when i first read this and it was effective in that it really surprised me that he yeah, i mean it surprised dead. me that he was dead it also surprised me that they right there exposed that he was this monstrous thing and of course the, the real dunwich horror is this monster that we're going to get to right in fact here in, in chapter seven he basically says that was all prologue boys and girls now we're getting to the dunwich horror but i just wanted well i don't know i wanted wilbur to like you know punch out some cops or like you know bite somebody's head off or something like that you know what i mean it's just, yeah yeah he just gets uh, one dog takes him out and he's eight foot tall at that point in the story mm-hmm. you would think just be able to beat one dog but anyway back to where we are in the story what we learned from this quote is that something's busted out of that house and mrs Corey, when she hears this from luther the hired boy, mm-hmm. uh, she begins calling around to the neighbors trying to figure out what's up, and she gets a hold of Sally Sawyer, who says, check it out, 
our son was out and about, and he has seen that the Watley house is completely blowed up, like yeah. dynamite went off inside. Right. And there's this tar stuff everywhere, and there's crazy tracks leading away, this big matted down sloth. The cows have all run up to the devil's hopyard, but they're mostly gone, and the ones that are left have been almost sucked dry of blood. I mean, something crazy has just happened. Now, in these parts, there's a lot of this crazy dialect and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and, you know, there's... Lovecraft uses this a bunch. He uses, like, in the picture of the house, and he uses it in The Shadow of Rinsmith, which, which will be coming up soon. But in 1929, he wrote a letter, and this is what he, you know, he says about this dialect, because nobody knows where it really came from. This is sort of mm-hmm. a, a Lovecraftian dialect. Uh, and he says in this letter, talking about being up north and, you know, meeting people and having their accents, and he says, As far as Yankee farmers, oddly enough, I haven't noticed the majority to talk any different from myself so that I've never regarded them as a separate class to whom one must use a special dialect. If I were to say, Morning, Zeke, how ye be? To anybody along the road during my numerous summer walks, I fancy I'd receive an icy stare in return, or perhaps a puzzled inquiry as to what theatrical troupe I had wandered off out of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this is not him recording the actual uh, sounds of these Yankee rurals, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, but, but then, he says, later in, the, in another letter, when in Vermont in the summer of 1928, however, Lovecraft wrote to his aunt, whether you believe it or not, the rustics hereabouts actually say kiao and down and arand and employ a daily speech, a thousand colorful country idioms which we know only in literature. In Vermont, they, there seems to be this kind of more rural, weird accent. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, our reader today and our reader for most of these stories has been Andrew Lehman, and he nails it. Oh, my God, does he yeah, ever. He's just got it figured out. When I read these things, I have a hard time you know, getting through and puzzling out what's going on, but uh, Andrew attacks it, and it just comes out, and it all sounds right. And also, you know, the, speaking of Andrew, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, which is his group, they put out a radio drama version of the Dunwich Horror. Is, is that right? Yeah, they have this thing called Dark Adventure Radio Theater that they mm-hmm. do, and they adapt Lovecraft stories. They've done... Uh, Shadow Out of Time, At the Mountains of Madness, uh, Shadow Over Innsmouth, and, of course, The Dunnish Horror. Yeah, so everybody should check that out. I mean, seriously, it is a super amazing adaptation of this story. They include pretty much everything, and they don't change things around. They really stay true to the story, but they do it in a really entertaining Mm way. Andrews uh, does a voice there, and Barry Lynch is Armitage. Now, Barry Lynch, he plays Akeley, in the Whisper and Dark movie that's uh, coming out soon. Yeah. And he does, he's, he's awesome. He's a great, great actor. He really is. Okay, well, we'll put a link up to uh, how to get that on our show notes. It's over at CthulhuLives.org. Yeah, I recommend it to everybody. Mm-hmm. It's going to be good stuff. So, okay, back into the story. By noon that day, most of the men in the village are wandering around the roads and the meadows looking for these tracks. They see that it looks like whatever left that house and blew it up has been kind of running around and, and it's gone down into the ravine, the gigantic ravine. Nobody mm-hmm. wants to go down there <laughs> to see what's no. up. <laughs> that night, everybody just locks in as best as they can. They lock up the cattle at Elmer Fry's house, though, at about 2 in the morning. The people in that house hear a swishing or lapping, and all the dogs are going nuts. And before they can call anybody, they hear splintering wood, and suddenly the cows out in their barn are just all screaming. Yeah. It's actually kind of a horrific scene because they just have to stay quiet. They don't want to make any noise. No. And they they have to wait this out while something is crushing their barn and killing all the cows. You know, there's an interesting, too. They talk about being on, they have a party phone. Yeah. Everybody gets on the line together here. This is a little bit of information from the annotated H.P. Lovecraft that Joshi annotated. Uh Uh, It says, in 1928, there were only 16.32 telephones per 100 people in the United States. And even this was much higher rate 
than in other parts of the world. Party lines were the earliest type of telephone system in which two or more telephones were connected to a single telephone line. They were mm. common in rural areas, but by no means restricted uh, to them at the time. So basically, all these people had one phone line. So anytime you would just pick up the phone, it would be connected, and they could all just sort of talk to each other. Yeah, so they sort of had a social network. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty interesting, and that occurred to me later when it's people just kept getting on the line to listen to horrible things <laughs> happening. Yeah. You know, and, well, actually, it happens uh, pretty quickly here. In the morning uh, after this happened, everybody's freaking out; they don't know what to do. Old Zebulon Watley is saying, "You know, maybe we have to go up on the hilltops and chant or something." You know, he's a half related to the decadent Waitleys. I'm switching up between Wiley and Whaley. I don't know what the best way to pronounce it is. But this this reporter, they actually tell a reporter, hey, this crazy thing happened, but he brushes it off and he writes a little humorous article about it, kind of making yeah. fun of the locals, which gets picked up by the AP, which becomes significant later. Now, one night passes without incident Yeah. the next night, so everybody hopes the thing is gone. But the night after that, there's more barking of dogs. There are fresh trails. The trail goes from the ravine all the way up to Sentinel Hill. Whatever this is that's traveling around, it goes almost perpendicularly up the cliff wall. Mm-hmm. Like, it would just totally impossible. And yeah. it stops at the top, and it reverses direction, and it goes back down into that ravine. Whatever it's doing, it's, it's living down there, and it's going up to the hill and going back at night. And, you know, and at the top, there's just a massive space where there's something thrashed around, and there's mm-hmm. that sticky, that tarry stickiness everywhere. The tarry there was stuff that was at the yeah. house, that they were waiting in the house when it busted up. Thursday night began much like the others, but it ended less happily. The whippoorwills in the glen had screamed with such unusual persistence that many could not sleep, and about 3 a.m. all the party telephones rang tremulously. Those who took down their receivers heard a fright-mad voice shriek out, Help! Oh my God! And some thought a crashing sound followed the breaking off of the exclamation. There was nothing more. No one dared do anything, and no one knew till morning whence the call came. Then those who had heard it called everyone on the line and found that only the Fries did not reply. The truth appeared an hour later when a hastily assembled group of armed men trudged out to the Fry place at the head of the glen. It was horrible, yet hardly a surprise. There were more swaths and monstrous prints, but there was no longer any house. It had caved in like an eggshell, and amongst the ruins nothing living or dead could be discovered. Only a stench and a tarry stickiness. The Elmer Fries had been erased from Dunwich. So that gets us into chapter 8. Meanwhile, this is a sort of a meanwhile chapter at Miskatonic. A different phase of the horror is perceived. Well, Armitage and his folks at Miskatonic have gotten a hold of the, all the things from Waitley's place. His journal and his books. And uh, they're all trying to puzzle out Wilbur's journal, but it's in a language nobody can understand. They think it's, it might be like Arabic or Mesopotamian. Nobody knows. But then eventually, Armitage figures out it's a cipher. Right. It's, it's like a code. It's not really an actual language. And he decides he's going to figure out the code yeah. so he's going to try and break this code so he does all this research checking out all these forbidden cults and all these old wizard things yeah. and and he realizes that the cipher is actually a cipher of english and it has been kind of processed through this mystical code of some kind mm-hmm. he thinks he's going to break it and then he it doesn't and he, you know he just stops sleeping he's not eating he's just trying to work on this thing the whole time yeah. and then it lists actually this, this is kind of an interesting part where he where he lists all these books that uh, that he's going through. Mm-hmm. Trithmedius, Polygraphia, 
and uh, I'm not going to try and right. read all. But their books on uh, cryptography, names, right? right? The, on code breaking. On code breaking, yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, are they're real books? I was wondering about that. Yeah, they're all real books, and actually, the way that they're listed is uh, happens to be the exact same order. Uh, that they're listed in the ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Oh, right. So Lovecraft had that. Which Lovecraft owned. And he just said, yeah. uh, I need some code-breaking books. There they are. Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> and there they are. That's cool. Well, he does finally break the code, right? He does. He does break the code. Man. Woo! When he starts deciphering what Wilbur was writing about, it's some crazy stuff. Today learned the Aklo for the Sabaoth, it ran, which did not like it being answerable from the hill and not from the air. That upstairs is more ahead of me than I thought it would be, and does not like to have much earth brain. Shot Elam Hutchins' collie Jack when he went to bite me, and Elam says he would kill me if he dast. I guess he won't. Grandfather kept me saying the dough formula last night, and I think I saw the inner city at the two magnetic poles. I shall go to those poles when the earth is cleared off, if I can't break through with the Dohna formula when I commit it. They from the air told me at Sabbath that it will be years before I can clear off the earth. And I guess Grandfather will be dead then, so I shall have to learn all the angles of the planes and all the formulas between the ear and the narr. They from outside will help, but they cannot take body without human blood. That upstairs looks it will have the right cast. I can see it a little when I make the Vorish sign and blow the powder of Ibngazi at it. And it is near like them at May Eve on the hill. The other face may wear off some. I wonder how I shall look when the earth is cleared and there are no earth beings on it. He that came with the Aklo Sabaoth said I may be transfigured, there being much of outside to work on. That's frightening. Now, there's a bunch of crazy stuff in there that I, I wanted to, to go over just really quick. Yeah, do it. Uh, the Aklo, this is ripped off from Arthur Mackin's The White People, specifically Aklo, which was in the girl's diary. She says, I must not write down the real names and days and months for uh, which I found out a year ago, nor the way they make the Aklo letters or the Chayan language or the beautiful circles, nor the Mayo games, nor the chief songs. I'm not exactly sure what the Aklo Sabbath is. And I don't think Lovecraft is, I think he just liked that from that story. And also the Vorish sign is from the white people. And the, the line that that is from, it, it says, it was all so still and silent and the sky was heavy and gray and sad, like a wicked Vorish dome in deep Deno. And of course, Ibn uh, Ghazi, there was in the festival, a reference to an Ibn, Shaskabo? Yeah, Ibn Shakabeo, I think. Shakabeo, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Who was a sorcerer. So this Ibn Ghazi could be an Arabic sorcerer. Hmm, interesting. Or, or a precursor to Fugazi. Could be. <laughs> could be. Armitage, at this point, once he breaks the code, he goes book mad, you know? He just starts yeah. re sitting there reading and reading and translating. His, his wife's bringing him food that he barely eats. He stays up for a few days just going crazy. Yeah. Professor Rice and Dr. Morgan come to see him, but they leave looking frightened after what he tells them. And, you know, he'll take a break or two to sleep a little, but he just keeps at it. And after a couple of days, he finishes the whole diary. Weekly goes home in need of medical aid because he's put himself through so much. He's 73 years old. Yeah. And the doctor shows up. He's 73. He's a pretty old guy. And uh, he's only able to say when he goes home, what in God's name can we do? It's such a big problem. <laughs> right. And when he's delirious when he gets there. His wilder wanderings were very startling indeed including frantic appeals that something in a boarded-up farmhouse be destroyed, and fantastic references to some plan for the extirpation of the entire human race and all animal and vegetable life from the earth by some terrible elder race of beings from another dimension. 
He would shout that the world was in danger, since the elder things wished to strip it and drag it away from the solar system and cosmos of matter into some other plane or phase of entity from which it had once fallen, vigintillions of eons ago. At other times he would call for the dreaded Necronomicon and the Demonolatrea of Remigius, in which he seemed hopeful of finding some formula to check the peril he conjured up. Stop them, stop them, he would shout. Those Waitleys meant to let them in, and the worst of all is left. Tell Rice and Morgan we must do something. It's a blind business, but I know how to make the powder. It hasn't been fed since the 2nd of August when Wilbur came here to his death. And at that rate... He brings up the other things which play prominently in the Mountains of Madness. Mm -hmm. They want to take the Earth out of the solar system and out of the cosmos and do something with it. A phase of entity from which it had once fallen vegetillions of aeons yeah. ago. Now, vegetillions, I just, I, I looked this up. It is enumeration, it's 10 to the 63rd power in the United wow. States. But in, in British numeration, it's 10 to the 120th power. <laughs> it's a long time ago. It's a long, long time ago. Vigintillions of eons ago. In fact, I think Vigintillion was in Call of Cthulhu. I it was. That... That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he shouts, stop them, stop them. Those Waitleys meant to let them in, and the worst of all is left. It hasn't been fed since the 2nd of August when Wilbur came here to his death. And at that rate, dun, dun, dun. so yeah. in exactly. his delirium, he's sort of putting together everything that happens. When he He's a strong 73, though. I mean, he kind of passes through it. And that weekend when he wakes up, he gets together with Rice and Morgan, and they, they try to break out a plan. Exactly. You know, they start grabbing books. They start talking about what they can do to put a stop to this. They're obviously not too skeptical of what it says in Wilbur's diary because, I mean, they saw the body in the library, all tentacled. Nobody would have believed it if they hadn't seen Wilbur's body and what he was. And seeing that makes them go, okay, this is legit. This is happening. They decide they can't contact the police about it until they've got a plan together, really. Armitage is spending time in the lab, like mixing powders and chemicals and that kind of thing. But he's, he's not really mm -hmm. sure what he's going to do. Because unknown to him, this thing is about to spring forth right away. And he, he's thinking maybe in about a week he'll head out to Dunwich after he's had more time to make some plans. Yeah. But then he sees the little article in the Arkham Advertiser, which is the joke yeah. article that the guy had written when he'd heard about what happened. You know, he's laughing. He's saying that all the bootlegged hooch in Dunwich has called up this monster. Like, it's a humorous thing. And then he realizes, oh, oh no. no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so he calls Rice and Morgan. They get together and they discuss. And then the next day... They're getting their crap together to confront the evil. That brings us into chapter nine. When Armitage, Rice, and Morgan, they roll into town, it's a Friday afternoon, and pretty quickly, they talk to those dudes eating pickles over at <laughs> the general store, playing checkers and eating pickles, and they find out what happened at the Elmer Fry house. We kind of broke away to find out what's up with them for a second. Now they're in town, stories back together again. They ride around all afternoon, checking out the wreckage and the path up to Sentinel Hill, mm. and they hear that some state police also show Yeah, up. and well, oh, this is what's, this is a disturbing part here, where they, they go up there, and the by the Fry yard, there is a, a police mm. car, and he asks uh, old Sam Hutchins what's going on, and Sam Hutchins is kind of freaking out, and he says, you know, I told him not to go down in the Glen. Don't go down there. You know, the whippoorwills are down there. It's a bad thing. They kind of just drop it at this point, which means that the police went down into the Glen, which is where the horror like stays during the day yeah. and they just got freaking killed i know well it's funny it says you know when he says i told him not to go down in the glen 
And I, you know, I didn't think they would, especially with all those whippoorwills. To, oh no! Like, why yeah. were the whippoorwills down there? Because exactly. they were down there. Yeah. Because <laughs> there was some some people were dying. When I first read that, I missed that the cops went down there and, and were killed. When I went through my second reading, that's when it really stood out to me, and it was extra creepy that it it that was just sort of thrown in. And then yeah. Armitage goes, "Well, we got to keep moving ahead." It's also interesting that the the cops obviously were probably total skeptics i mean the guy said don't go down in there and the first thing they did was say we got to go down there because what were they worried about big deal right. what is there going to be a giant invisible monster ouch you know <laughs> <laughs> now armitage you know he starts checking his equipment this is totally you know a pulp action scenario in a way oh right He's, yeah yeah you know, okay flashlights working Rice pulls out a metal sprayer like the ones used to exterminate insects. Yeah. Uh, Morgan's got a big game rifle. They're like any pulp heroes except they're old men and scholars. So it's got that yeah. Lovecraftian Well, uh, one of them's not so old. Dr. Morgan is youngish described. Like the, He oh. describes at the beginning of Chapter 10, old white-bearded Dr. Armitage, stocky, iron-gray Professor Rice, the lean, youngish Dr. Morgan. Oh, okay. So there's an age range here. While Armitage is checking his equipment, he mumbles to himself, Negotium Perambulans in Tenebris, which is a Bible quote. It is. But roughly translates to what? The pestilence that walketh in darkness. It's from Psalm 91.6. And now everybody uh, in town locks in for the night, but these three, they're going to stand guard at the Fry Ruins. Yeah. Because that's the last you know time the, mo- the monster was afoot. They stay the night there, out of the Cold Spring Glen, which is that ravine where the monster is, they, uh, mm-hmm. The smell of Wilbur is sweeping up out of there. But whatever is down there is biding its time, it says, which is a great way to say it, you know. It could just be sleeping or who knows what it's doing out there, but HPL gives it that little bit of human intelligence. It's a little sinister, you know, biding its time. Yeah. The next day, clouds form and it begins pouring rain, and the men take shelter in the ruins and try to decide what they should do. I mean, should we just go down there and confront it? Obviously, that didn't Mm -hmm. work out for the cops. All right. But their ruminations are cut short when a dozen men just come hauling down the road. Some of them are crying, you know, and they're saying, yeah. oh, God, oh, God, it's out. And, and by and this time, by day. It's in the daylight, yeah. This very minute, it's out. And they, they spell it out to Armitage. Zeb Watley got a call from Miss Corey, who said that her hired boy, Luther, was out bringing the cows in from the storm when he smells that terrible smell. He mm-hmm. sees the trees in the glen bending. Yeah, like pushing then, aside. Yeah, and then there's all these swishing sounds, and the trees along the road start getting pushed to one side. But he doesn't see anything. All he sees are the trees moving. And then there's this bridge, which starts creaking and heaving. Whatever it is, is going through the bridge, and then it's on its way up to Sentinel Hill. And he sees those big round tracks in the mud again. They're almost like giant elephant tracks. It's a giant, invisible monster. Other men um, cut in. They say Mm -hmm. that, you know, what Luther saw was just the beginning. Other people saw the trees bending. They heard the swishing. They smelled the awful smell. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Zeb was calling people, and... Everybody was talking over the phone lines. And Sally got on the line. Sally's the housekeeper for Seth Bishop. She says, oh, the trees are bending. Oh, now the shed down the road caves in. Wait a minute, my picket fence is going. You know, she's screaming and screaming. She sees whatever this thing is going towards yeah. her. And then everybody on the line can hear Seth and his son screaming too. And Sally's screaming, the house is caving in, the house is caving in. And then there's terrible sounds of screaming and crashing. And then and then nothing. Nothing. Well, everybody on the dead. phone, yeah, heard happened so all the men got together with their fords and wagons and they come down to the fry place to see what armitage and his colleagues are going to do now armitage gets flipping tough here and he just goes yeah. look the watleys were into wizardry and the only way we're going to beat this thing is with wizardry yeah there's a great hero speech here armitage saw that the time for positive action had come and spoke decisively to the faltering group of frightened rustics we must follow it boys 
he made his voice as reassuring as possible. I believe there's a chance of putting it out of business. You men know that those Whiteleys were wizards. Well, this thing is a thing of wizardry and must be put down by the same means. I've seen Wilbur Whiteley's diary and read some of the strange old books he used to read, and I think I know the right kind of spell to recite to make the thing fade away. Of course, one can't be sure, but we can always take a chance. It's invisible, I knew it would be, but there's a powder in this long-distance sprayer that might make it show up for a second. Later on, we'll try it. It's a frightful thing to have alive, but it isn't as bad as what Wilbur would have let in if he'd lived longer. You'll never know what the world has escaped. Now, we've only this one thing to fight, and it can't multiply. It can, though, do a lot of harm, so we mustn't hesitate to rid the community of it. We must follow it. This is a tough, like, come on, boys, who's with me, kind of... <laughs> and they all kind of like, well... They're all like, know. sure! <laughs> I guess we'll show you how to get up there. Yeah. They go, they go up with them, and they get up to the area, but... It's gone. The house is smashed. There's nothing alive or dead there. They take the shortcut. Seth Bishop's house. It's all ruined. Nobody's alive. Mm -hmm. And then they begin following the tracks of the thing from there. Yeah. Uh, and the men all shudder as they do this. And this brings one of my favorite lines. It was no joke tracking down something as big as a house that one could not see, but that had all the vicious malevolence of a demon. <laughs> it was no joke. <laughs> <laughs> so Why would funny. They it was a joke. It's crazy. Seriously, guys, it's a big invisible monster. It's no joke. At this point, Armitage pulls out a pocket telescope and mm -hmm. he begins scanning the area and then he hands it over to Morgan. Then Morgan goes, <gasps> and he yeah. <laughs> passes the, the glass over to Earl Sawyer. Earl says that you can see, sees in the distance, the bushes are moving around, that, there's, yeah. that they can see where it's at. They're all there and the thing's moving up Sentinel Hill. And that's what's going to bring us into chapter 10, which is the final chapter. A little side note, you know, Lovecraft actually was really into telescopes. He had a Barden three inch telescope that cost $50 back in 1906. And he carried it in a black enamel bag, which he habitually carried with him on trips. So he would have been your man if you needed to spy on an invisible monster. Lovecraft exactly. would have been your guy. Yeah, that's it. Because it seems like kind of a weird thing it, when Armitage just pulls out this thing and he hands it to him. It's like, oh, that's weird that he would brought that with him. But Lovecraft carried one. You know what I mean? He carried yeah. one of, with him. So it's another link to see how Lovecraft has really kind of put himself in the place of Armitage. Well, so now we're going to go on to chapter 10, which is the final chapter, the final confrontation. I think we should save that for the next episode. We're running low on time here. Yeah. I want to thank Andrew again for doing a great job reading. Oh, this is so really, good. I, these are good shows, man. I really like the story. Oh, gosh. I love the story so much. I can't get enough of it. It's good stuff. Well, we're going to get some more of it next week. Uh, for now, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey, and this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com